I had a three-week window from April 24th to May 14th of this year that was simply too much. It was too much. My youngest daughter, Maddie, had two performances into the woods at West Jessamine High School and the spring recital through Mindy's Jessamine School of Classical Dance. And Jenny and I were production parents, so that meant the week of production for Into the Woods, we made dinner for Maddie and 70 of her closest friends. <laughs> and then for the ballet recital, I was one of the dance dads that did set up and teardown before and after the recital. The weekend of that recital, I was a celebrity chef for the Taste of Jessamine County on a Friday night in which I had to make eight pans of homemade macaroni and cheese. Thank you, Jillian Hope Vanderpool, for coming to my rescue. And then, if that weren't enough, that same week, I needed to get my Asbury University students who were graduating ready to do their capstone presentation. The big culmination of five years in a program to demonstrate and showcase everything they've learned in such a way that it wows the Salvation Army brass. I had meetings and work to get ready for the opening of the Lone Oak Neighborhood Pool. I was the team dad responsible for ordering all of the t-shirts and making them available. And if that weren't enough, Don, that was the same week that we went to Line Fork, Kentucky to scope out the mission site for the missions weekend at Generations Community Church. And when people would ask me, how are you doing? You know what I would say to them? Man, I'm busy. I'm busy. But you know what? Not a single person was sympathetic. <laughs> Not a single person was sympathetic. Every single person. I told that to Zeke. Do you know what they did? Oh, well, let me tell you what I've got going on in my life. You think your kids are in activities. Let me spell it out for you. You know, Courtney, Ashley, Brittany, like this last week has been one of the other theater moms laid into a whole thing the first night of the meal because I was a little rushed bringing what I think it was like spaghetti or whatever in and and she goes oh yeah last week was dinner by drive-thru we did let's see Hardee's McDonald's Chick-fil-a Sonic KFC Fazoli's I think we did it all she was like a badge of honor it was like those sneetches with stars on their bellies like and I think, I think we Americans love to be busy. It's, it's like a mark of distinction. It's like a badge of honor. It's a sign that you've made it. You're important. How are you doing? Oh, I'm busy. Now, many of you, not all of you, but many of you in this room do not need your pastor to remind you today that you are busy. You are keenly aware of this. Some of you have jobs that when you leave the job, the job comes home with you through your device, through your email. If you're a teacher, it's like never ending. I've got to prepare a lesson. I've got to grade stuff from the lesson. I've got to do all the entry data into the portal, the teacher portal. So you've got your job, your family, house, kids, chores, laundry, 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 laundry. Sorry. <laughs> Bills, kids, their homework, their activities, your activities, if you actually have time for activities, church when you can fit it in, practices, performances, games, and every now and then a family dinner at the family table. Woo, look at you. Good job. 
And the start of school for a lot of us in America is the start of busy season. The start of school is often the start of busy season. Not unlike there's deer season or duck season, there's busy season. And it tends to coincide with August, September. I find it interesting that 20 years ago, before we all had smartphones, people in greater Lexington would get mad at red lights. You know, yellow, red. You know, they get so mad they got caught at a red light. Now, now it's different. Red light, out comes the phone. I don't know what they're doing, but they're doing something on the phone. It's TikTok videos, messaging, I don't know. Because sometimes, a lot of times, I'm the second person in line at the green light. And I promise you, I'm not on my phone. And so then there's the pressure, because I'm an introvert, and introverts feel pressure anytime we need to instigate or initiate something. Do I honk a little bit? Do I not honk at all? How long do I wait before they notice the light is green? One, 1,000, two, 1,000, three. Well, they don't know. <laughs> like, and thank goodness there's usually some guy in a Ford F-350 that's about five cars back that he's just like, the light is green. We may proceed. Corey Tenboom once said that if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. If the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. And as John, Mo John Mark Comer points out, both sin and busyness have the same effect. They cut off your connection to God, they cut off your connection to other people, and they cut off your connection even to your own soul. In 1973, a couple of sociologists at Princeton University conducted a social experiment with Princeton Theological Seminary students, about 100 of them. And they were given this assignment. You're going to give a talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now this talk is gonna take place across campus on the far side of Princeton University. They divided the students into three groups and the students didn't know that they were being sorted this way. The first group was told, if you leave now, you're probably gonna arrive about an hour before the talk and you've got plenty of time. A third of the students were told, if you leave right now, you'll probably get there about five minutes before the talk, you'll be on time, but you'll get where you need to go. And for a third of the students, they told them, I'm so sorry, but we've really messed this up. If you leave right now and you hustle across campus, you're probably gonna be about 10 minutes late. Good luck and thank you. Unbeknownst to the students, every single one of them encountered a man who had fallen in an alley and who was clearly injured. The man was coughing <laughs> and moaning and needed help. Now, what was, the, what was the teaching that all the seminary students were supposed to do? It was the parable of what? The Good Samaritan. 63% of the students who were early stopped to assist the man. Half of the students who were on time stopped to help the man. Only one out of 10 students who were late stopped to help the man. And these people were on their way to deliver a talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan and how you should stop and help someone who is needy by the side of the road. Hashtag irony. It's actually not ironic at all. Um, 
people who are late, people who are rushed are less likely to see need. They're less likely to see a need in front of them. When you're rushed, it's the case that you often can't see what's right in front of your face because your gaze is beyond what's right in front of you. So in light of all of that, I beg you, I implore you, O Generations Community Church, eliminate hurry. Eliminate hurry. Eliminate hurry. In Exodus chapter 20, Moses comes down the mountain and lays out 10 commandments for God's people. And this is what he has to say verbalizing this through God. God is speaking through Moses. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them. But on the seventh day, he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Now, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments tell us what it means to be human at a base level. The Ten Commandments are not some high goal that God in heaven, every time He can be like, hey, Paul, thanks for not murdering anybody today. Good job. Angel, Michael, Angel, Gabriel, everybody gather around. We're going to give all the stars to Paul. He didn't kill anybody today. Woo, he is knocking it out of the park. (laughs) You were the second car at the light. Okay. So, no, uh, the Ten Commandments, if you keep them, it makes you at a base level human. Okay. And the Sabbath was an entire day of no work, which is what set Israel apart from all of its neighbors, from sundown Friday to the appearance of the first three stars on Saturday night, everyone stopped doing. And it included everyone, even the servants and slaves, not just the owners and rich people. And it's linked somehow to God's work in creation. Well, this same commandment is iterated again in Deuteronomy chapter five, only there's a twist. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses says this, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. You have six days each week for your ordinary work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest, dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your oxen and donkeys and other livestock, and any foreigners living among you. Uh, All your male and female servants must rest as you do. Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought you out with his strong hand and powerful arm. That is why the Lord your God commanded you to rest on the Sabbath day. For 400 years, the Israelites had been slaves. They had worked without rest, generation after generation of constant activity. Slaves don't get a day off. Slaves aren't valuable for who they are. They're only valuable for what they do, which is why in the ancient world, in slave markets, the healthier ones were worth more money. Slaves are doers. It's what their masters bid them to do that what's make, what makes them valuable. Doesn't this sound a little bit like the American marketplace? 
and the American public education system. Moses is saying something important here. Moses is saying, look, in Egypt, you were slaves, you were machines. But now, now you, you are God's people. That's who you are. Your value is rooted in who you are and in whose you are. And you're going to learn how to become more human and less machine. So every seven days, stop. Every seven days, be. Every seven days, quit doing. And God takes this Sabbath every bit as seriously as murder and having no other gods before him. Uh, he rants on it through the prophets. In Jeremiah chapter uh, 17, verses 21 uh, and following, the prophet Jeremiah says this. This is what the Lord says. Listen to my warning. Stop carrying on your trade at Jerusalem's gates on the Sabbath day. Do not do your work on the Sabbath. Make it a holy day. I gave this command to your ancestors, but they didn't listen and they didn't obey. They stubbornly refused to pay attention or accept my discipline. And then later on in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 26, your priests have violated my instructions and defiled my holy things. They make no distinction between what is holy and what is not. And they don't teach my people the difference between what is ceremonial ceremonially clean and unclean. They disregard my Sabbath days so that I am dishonored among them. And then in Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 16 and following, he says this, if I can find it. In those days, I saw men of Judah treading out their wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in grain, loading it on donkeys and bringing their wine, grapes, figs, and all sorts of produce to Jerusalem to sell on the Sabbath. So I rebuked them. Some men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise. They were selling it on the Sabbath to the people in Jeru of Judah and in Jerusalem at that. So after 70 years in exile, God's people come back to Jerusalem and they read the law, they read the commandments, and they rededicate themselves to be God's people and to live the way God wants them to live. And they're violating the Sabbath. So Nehemiah confronts them. In fact, he stations guards at the gate to arrest any merchants who show up to sell stuff on a Sabbath. And so you might be tempted at this point to go, well, yes, Max, that's well and good. How Old Testament of you. And we know the Old Testament has a lot of rules and stuff and regulations, but we're in the age of grace and it's the age of freedom. And it's none of that law stuff. It's grace stuff. How about Jesus? Well, how about Jesus? Let's look at Jesus for a little bit and let's look at his life and his ministry. And we see a lot in the opening chapters of Mark. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 29 and following. After Jesus left the synagogue on the Sabbath, he went with James and John, and they went to Simon and Andrew's home. So on the Sabbath, Jesus is in the synagogue, as all Jew good Jews are, and then afterward, he's having a meal with his friends at the home of Simon. And that's what he's doing on the Sabbath. Um, Jesus did something, though, on this particular Sabbath that would have made the Pharisees really mad. Um, Simon's mother-in-law was sick, and so Jesus healed her. And then she made a meal for everybody, and they had this meal together, okay? Um, 
On the one hand, Jesus observed the Sabbath. He observed the Sabbath regularly. Um, on the other hand, Jesus did not observe the Sabbath the way the Pharisees did. So there's a difference in the way that Jesus is observing the Sabbath. In other words, when Jesus encountered someone who needed help, Jesus rendered aid. And that's what made him different. He put people above the rule, so to speak. The, the Sabbath features prominently in the life and ministry of Jesus. In Mark chapter two, verses uh, 22 and following, uh, there's this interchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. One day on the Sabbath, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of grain to eat. But the Pharisees said to Jesus, look, why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, haven't you ever read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God during the days when Abiathar was high priest and he broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. And he gave some to his companions. And then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. Let me read that again. The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even over the Sabbath. So there's several things going on in this passage. Jesus is claiming, I'm the new David, I'm the king. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you've got it all wrong. The Sabbath isn't about all these rules. Now, during Jesus' day in that time and place, the Pharisees and the God squad had 1,521 rules and regulations related to how to keep the Sabbath properly. When to light the candle. They had a tremendous discussion, Robbie, on what to do with your hen that lays an egg on the Sabbath. What do you do? Oh my goodness. Do you move the hen? That's work. What if you poke the hen and the hen gets up on its own? Like how to like, how can you get that egg without working on the Sabbath? And they, some of you are like, this is crazy. Yeah, you can go through the rabbinical literature and read on and on about the rabbis trying to solve the problem of a hen laying an egg on the Sabbath. What on, what on earth are you going to do? Okay, and Jesus is saying, the Sabbath is a gift to you. The Sabbath was made for people. It's a gift to you from God for your benefit. The Sabbath is the perfect day to show mercy for anyone in need. Now, most biblical scholars will acknowledge that Jesus only had three years of public ministry, just three years. He only had three years to proclaim and announce the arrival of the kingdom of God, to preach the good news, to heal the sick, to cast out demons. He had only three years to turn disciples into apostles. He only had three years to accomplish his mission. <gasps> Just three years. And yet, we know that Jesus observed the Sabbath. Every seven days, more or less, he stopped operation. Jesus with a limited time frame. Doesn't he know how important this is? Doesn't he know what's at stake? Isn't he going to maximize the minutes? Doesn't he know that he's got to turn these disciples into something? Of course he does. And yet every seven days, he Sabbaths. He rests. He's with his friends. And not only that, my read of the Gospels, when I look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels, I do not see a man who rushed anywhere. Jesus never rushed. 
if there ever was a moment when he should have gotten on his game, it's when people came and told him, look, your friend Lazarus is really sick and he's going to die. You need to come. Does Jesus get it into gear and hustle over to, you know, Bethany? No, there's no rushing in the guy's bones at all. Doesn't he know how important this is? Jesus isn't hurried. He isn't rushed. Let me go back to this passage in Mark chapter one. Uh, so after this, that evening of the Sabbath, when Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law and, and he has a meal with his friends, that night, a bunch of people show up, like a bunch of people. So when the Sabbath is done, the three stars have appeared, it's over. Everybody shows up at the house and they want Jesus, okay? Uh, that evening after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door. The whole town, okay? Um, if Jesus had been alive today, he would have been deluged with email and text messages and phone messages. And there would have been people all over like, Jesus, you need to come to this event. Jesus, we need you to be a showcase over here for what God, like Jesus, come on. Like he would have been deluged with requests and come and be and do and all of that stuff. And at the end of healing all of these sick people, Jesus does something absolutely remarkable. Mark 1 Verse 35, before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. My read of Jesus is that his favorite place of solitude was on the mountaintops. Anytime he was near some place that had a hill or a high place, he went up there all by himself. He was constantly ditching the disciples. He was constantly ditching Peter, James, and John would disappear. Where'd he go? Where'd he go? Where is he? he would disappear for silence and solitude. Uh, later, Simon and the others went out to find him. When they found him, they said, everybody's looking for you, okay? Jesus goes off alone. He's not driven by the approval of others. He's not driven by the needs of others. Master, everyone's looking for you. Jesus got away for moments of silence and solitude, and he Sabbathed. He Sabbathed. So if anything, we see in Jesus the, a more full picture of what it means to be and not do and to not be hurried. So in light of what God has to say about Sabbath and in light of what we see in the life of Jesus who withdrew for silence and solitude, I want to ask a couple of questions. Do you realize how much of a problem hurry is? Do you realize how much of a problem hurry is? We are rushed, 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 go, 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 boom, 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 get in the minivan, let's go, let's go, boom. Like that is not a way to live life. What meal can you enjoy on the run? Can you really savor moments with friends on the go? Like it's challenging. We are far too hurried. Do you realize how much a problem hurry is? What would life look like if you were not hurried. What would look, life look like if you were not hurried? And then lastly, what's your first response when you're alone in a quiet place or waiting somewhere? Is it to pull out that device and start scrolling? Like what is your first response when you're alone or in a quiet place or waiting somewhere? So how can we take this home? How can we eliminate hurry? I want to offer a couple of practical suggestions. Uh, the first is really simple. 
uh, begin to practice silence and solitude. Uh, the Greek word here is eremos, the quiet place. It's a place where you can hear God's voice in your own heart with greater clarity. When I was in my late 30s and early 40s, I began taking a day every now and then to get away to a lake or a trail. And I have to admit that I was so emotionally stunted, I didn't know it at the time. It was the only way by taking those larger chunks of time that I could figure out what I was actually feeling that I could actually discern God's voice and it took like an entire day. Now with a lot of therapy, like I can do it in a much shorter time frame. but like, you see what I'm saying here? So look at your calendar and plan some spaces for silence and solitude. And that goes for you extroverts. I know this is, so the introverts are like, oh yeah, this is totally great. I'm gonna get out my journal, it's gonna be awesome. It's just gonna be me and the Lord. And the extroverts are like, no, okay. This applies to all, this applies to all, introverts and extroverts alike, okay? And when you're planning out silence and solitude, start with just 15 minutes. Trust me, it's like a muscle. It, you're like, I'm gonna take half a day, I'm gonna take, no, no you're not. It's, <laughs> it's gonna crash and burn, you're gonna condemn yourself and then you're never gonna wanna try it again. No, start with 15 minutes. <laughs> start with 15 minutes, okay? And if all you do during those 15 minutes is a breathing prayer, Lord Jesus, have mercy. If that's all you do, that's enough. That's enough. Pay attention in that space to what you're actually thinking or feeling. What's going on on the inside? And what are some emotion words and things that can describe what's going on on the inside? Spend time waiting without your phone to distract you. If you're in line somewhere, if you're in a lobby somewhere, boy, do I miss the days. Uh, I would go early to pick up Maddie from dance studio. And 10 years ago, if I went into that lobby, I could get in her into conversations with the other dance moms. And now, now like everybody's on their device and it's so much harder. It's like a barrier. It's like I gotta pull them from someplace else and get them where they are physically to have a conversation. So begin to practice silence and solitude. Here's the good news. Younger Americans are rediscovering this. Right now on TikTok, there is a phenomenon about silent walking. <gasps> silent walking, you gotta try silent walking. I love it when young, I love it when young Americans rediscover an ancient practice because young Americans are typically like, oh, the Bible, it's so patriarchal and antiquated and like ancient peoples were just misogynist and backwards and they didn't understand anything. We're so much smarter and today and like they'll rediscover something that's right out of the mouth of Augustine of Hippo from 350 AD or right out of the pages of scripture. So here's what silent walking is on these TikTok videos. Gang, Leave your phone at home, take out your earbuds and just go for a walk outside for just 15 minutes. You will be amazed at like, it's just like, it's amazing. It electrifies you. You're like you, you come alive and you're less anxious and you can go and there's the TikTok video after TikTok video about silent walking. Ding. They've rediscovered the Christian practice of silence and solitude. This is wonderful. This is wonderful. Okay. So begin to practice silence and solitude. Secondly, observe a weekly Sabbath. If it's on a weekend, great. If it's in the middle of the week because of the way that you work, I think the Jewish way of doing it where you start the evening before with sunset and go to sunset the next day, that's a good way to do that. It really is because it helps you to lean into the day. But there are three aspects about Sabbath observing. One is stop. 
Stop working, stop buying, stop hustling, stop running around, close the calendar, put away the to-do list, go off the clock and stop. It took me a long time. I, for a long time, I mistakenly saw my Sabbath day from Generations' work as a chance to do all the household chores. <laughs> Boo! Doing household chores never set my soul on fire. At the end of the day, I never said to myself, wow, I feel so refreshed and relaxed. This was the best thing ever. I'm so glad the beds got mulched. This is great for everybody. No, it didn't happen, okay? So Sabbath is Sabbath, okay? So stop. And then the second thing is gather. So, oh, introverts, I'm talking to you. Gather. Come here on a Sunday with your brothers and sisters who've been adopted into God's family. Hear the word of God. Partake of the bread of life. Reaffirm your humanity. Worship your creator and redeemer. And be reminded because you're looking at a cross that God upholds the world. You don't have to. <laughs> it doesn't all rest on you. Hallelujah. <laughs> it doesn't all rest on you. And then sleep. You guys, you Americans today, are sleeping two to two and a half hours less than your grandparents did. This is not a badge of honor. <laughs> this is not a badge of honor, okay? Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Oh, okay, you've heard that one, okay. You have bodies that wear out and that are limited. Your body cannot do everything that you think it can. Um, okay, so stop, gather, and sleep. And if, and if I can talk to young people for a moment, those of you, say, younger than 25 who are digital natives, who can, your whole life, you kept thinking to yourself, man, someday, one day, when I have a smartphone of my own, someday, one day, when I've got my own screen and I'm not having to do parental controls and, oh, this is going to be the best thing in the world, I cannot wait, okay? I want to talk to you for a moment and ask a couple of questions. When in your life right now, do you experience silence and solitude? When in your life do you experience silence and solitude? When in your life right now do you stop? Like stop homework, stop gaming, stop extracurricular stuff, stop the extra job and simply be with friends and family. When in your life is that happening? I want to suggest to you that there is an American God, an American idol that's just idolatry. And it's the American idol of the good life. And the American idol of the good life goes like this. If you hustle when you're young and you get into the right classes and you get the right score on the SAT and you do all the right extracurriculars, you'll get into the right school and that's going to unlock the right job. And the right job's going to unlock this good life where you have a shot at being happy and maybe fulfilled. And maybe you'll pick up a spouse along the way. And maybe you'll have a house and car and, and other kinds of things like that. But it's a myth. It's a myth. It's a false God. It's an idol. It, this God will not deliver peace. This God will not deliver life. This God will only take from you. Um, can't tell you how many people I run into today, American parents who will say, I just want my kids to be happy. There's more to life than that. And I got to tell you, there's moments of life that are just absolutely painful and have loss and sorrow and tragedy, and it's the way it is. You're going to have seasons of happiness, and you're going to have seasons of loss. But I want you to endure. I want you to persevere. I want you to have abundant life, okay? When I was a young pastor, I wanted to be a relevant pastor, and I wanted to pastor a relevant church. Generations, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I wanted those things when I was younger. I apologize to you. I really do. 
uh, for those of you who were here in those days. Uh, and Eugene Peterson, at that time in my life, I thought of him as a crank. The man never pastored a church lar like larger than a few hundred people. He didn't pastor a megachurch. He didn't create a movement. He wasn't missional or on mission. And I saw him as a crank, really. Um, you know, he, tr he made that translation called The Message, which a lot of people got into. But that's what he's most famous for. But all of his books are obtuse with references to Melville and Moby Dick. And it's just thick, you know, heady, weird stuff. And I thought of him as a crank. And I just wrote him off. But in 2016, I read this book, The Pastor. And boy, did it speak to my soul. And today, I see Eugene Peterson as a gift to the church, a gift to pastors, and a gift for the church to be the church. And I just want to read you this one more lengthy passage that really expresses something that I desire in this next season of ministry, if you'll have me as your pastor. Okay? So one day with his elders, one of the elders asked Eugene and said to, to him, so what do you want to do, Pastor Eugene? And this is what Eugene Peterson said. I want to be a pastor who prays. I want to be reflective and responsive and relaxed in the presence of God so that I can be reflective and responsive and relaxed when I'm with you. I can't do that on the run. It takes a lot of time. I started out doing that with you, but now everything feels so crowded. I want to be a pastor who reads and studies. This culture in which we live squeezes all the God right out of us. I want to be observant and informed enough to help this congregation understand what we're up against. The temptations of the devil to get us thinking we can all be our own gods. This is subtle stuff. It demands some detachment and perspective. I can't do this just by trying harder. I want to be a pastor who has the time to be with you in leisurely, unhurried conversations so that I can understand and be a companion with you as you grow in Christ your doubts and your difficulties, your desires and your delights. I can't do that when I'm running scared. I want to be a pastor who leads you in worship, a pastor who brings you before God in receptive obedience, a pastor who preaches sermons that make scripture accessible and present and alive, a pastor who's able to give you a language and an imagination that restores in you a sense of dignity as a Christian in your homes and workplaces and gets rid of all these debilitating images of being a mere layperson. I want to be an unbusy pastor. He actually penned an op-ed piece in Christianity Today that made a, a lot of pastors really grumpy and mad and convicted all at once. <laughs> and it was simply called a call to be an unbusy pastor. Okay? I want to be an unbusy pastor for you. And I want you to be unbusy Christians, unbusy Christ followers, unbusy apprentices of Jesus. Your friends will notice, your family will notice, your coworkers will notice, your neighbors will take note. See, we're commanded to love. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and you must love your neighbor as yourself. Love and hurry are incompatible. Love and hurry are incompatible. And so, eliminate hurry. I beg of you, eliminate hurry.